Hello, everybody. We're going to be talking about the metaverse economy. Wait, oops, sorry. Wrong show. Uh, welcome to episode 250. We are in the green room. We have some quick introductions. Our awesome producers, uh, L is out today. And of course, uh, we'll be jumping in. So uh, real quick, we're going to go in reverse order. Michael, Fario, and Desmond, uh, where are you calling in from? What are you talking about? Michael, go ahead. Hey, hi, Michael Mose. I'm with Salesforce, where I work in innovation strategies. And here in Connecticut, right on, on the coast of Long Island Sound. And today we're gonna to be talking about how you get excellence at scale. All right, excellence at scale. And who's more excellent than Fario? Fario, tell us, what what are you talking about today? And what are we gonna be hearing I, from? And where I'm are you for calling from? I'm Barry Alcombabi, and I'm the first female CEO of, of Dialight PLC. We work in the industrial sector um, where there's not very many of us in, in that sector. And I'm talking about female leadership and ESG. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, and of course, Desmond, uh, where are you calling from? What are you talking about? Well, right. I'm calling it from the wonderful sunny San Diego, California right now. And uh, where else but to talk about driving on sunshine uh, as well as energy security and a couple of other things. But driving on sunshine, my favorite subject. Sure. Very, very cool. As you can tell, we got a very exciting jam-packed episode. And more importantly, this is episode 250. And uh, we're going to do the count and start the broadcast. So I'm going to start moving people around. And then, of course, follow. you can do the introductions. Are you guys ready? So three, two, one. We're going to go. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send your questions to Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO, founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in a World of Digital Giants. Ray's a regular television business and technology contributor on Fox Business, Yahoo Finance, NBC, Wall Street Journal, and Jetter. He's also a global sought-after keynote speaker, and in my humble opinion, one of the top futures to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. <laughs> Thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host of 250 episodes, Paul Afshar, the Chief Digital Evangelist for Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence. Executives around the world pay every attention to his tweets, his inspiration, and of course, the innovation that he's sharing. Uh, when he's not hosting and he's not keynoting or leading events at Salesforce, you can find him speaking on business TV outlets such as Bloomberg and posting insightful analyses such as the ones from this show at ZDNet. So, <laughs> so welcome to episode 250. And of course, who do we have as our awesome first guest? This is what I call our exceptional CEO episode. And uh, we're going to start with Desmond Wheatley, who's CEO, President, and Chairman of Beam Global, a clean technology leader in sustainable charging infrastructure. Desmond joined Beam Global in 2010 when it was Envision Solar, serving as company CEO since 2011 and Chairman of the Board since 2016. Desmond led the successful listing of Beam on NASDAQ on April 2019. Desmond founded, funded, and operated four profitable startup companies and was previously engaged in M&A activities. Uh, the M&A activities included evaluation of acquisition opportunities. All right, I love that, uh, 19, uh, April 19th. Conducted due diligence and raised commitments of over $500 million in debt and equity. As an innovative, Desmond holds several patents in the clean energy for mobility. Prior to being global, Desmond was founding partner of international consulting practice, Christian Hill 
And he was the CEO of iAccess FZ, a Dubai-based alternative energy and technology system integration company, and president of ENS, the largest independent security and energy management system integrator in the US. You can follow Desmond and all the incredible work that him and his company are doing on Twitter at Desmond Wheatley, D-S-M-O-N-D-W-H-E-A-T-L-E-Y. Welcome, Desmond, to Disrupt TV. Good, it's great to be here. Thanks very much for having me, uh, Vol. And uh, uh, yeah, I couldn't resist showing you. I didn't just um, list this thing on NASDAQ, but I actually got to ring the bell too. Ring the bell <laughs> on NASDAQ. Now, that's something that when you do it for a, with a company that you love, doing something that's as important as I believe what we're that's doing awesome. is uh, just a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yes. Unforgettable day, I'm sure. Unforgettable. That is so awesome. And, and really, congratulations, because that's one of the one of the bucket list items for I know a lot of folks on this show as entrepreneurs as they look out into the space. But hey, I want to ask you about EV infrastructure and charging. Um, I live here in the Silicon Valley, definitely hot. Um, you know, I've had an EV since 2012. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's one of the biggest uh, barriers to entry for EV enablement, right? Not having enough charging stations and charging capacity. So tell us a little bit more about where we are today with, you know, EV charging infrastructure and, of course, the capacity. Look, it's, we're going to see a fantastic um, adoption of electric vehicles over the next couple of decades. There's a lot of government tailwinds driving that. Uh, most European nations have announced outright bans of internal combustion engine vehicles over the next couple of decades. Starting in Norway in 2025, just a couple of years from now, you will not be able to buy gasoline or diesel vehicles. State of California's similar uh, ban in 2035. State of New York's done the same thing in the state of Washington's in 2030, in fact. But the great thing about this is actually, I don't think government tailwinds is going to be really what drives this. This will be, as all great revolutions are, a consumer-driven revolution. Uh, when Americans can start driving in fantastic vehicles like the Ford F-150 Lightning, GM's 1,000 horsepower Hummer, and all the other brilliant vehicles that are coming out electric, I think you're going to see an absolute stampede to electric vehicles regardless of, uh, of government tailwinds. The, the, the opportunity there is that now, of course, we're going to have to provide them with the infrastructure they need to fuel those vehicles. And as you all know, driving an electric vehicle, uh, you can make it work today. Uh, but it's nowhere near as ubiquitous and as reliable and as, as commonplace, frankly, as consumers will demand. So it's, we, there's an awful lot of work to be done. And we've devoted the last decade to come out with products that allow us to rapidly deploy in a highly scalable uh, fashion. Uh, the, very exciting technology products which allow people not just to drive on electricity but to drive on locally stored and locally generated renewable energy driving on sunshine. It just doesn't get any better. That's, That's amazing. amazing. Coming from a guy who's dialing in from San Diego. So I love that, driving on sunshine. So Beam's patented product is the only 100% renewable, transportable, off-grid EV charging infrastructure option on the market. So you have a fantastic innovation and a leader in this space. I've uh, read comments from you in terms of the importance of this revolution. First of all, noting that 70% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation and generation of electricity. And but you talked about a changing mindset. Um, I recently read you wrote charging electric vehicles requires a different mindset. It's not about running on empty. It's about creating a charging network in which drivers feel comfortable plugging in their car wherever they are. You noted that car spends 95% of the time parked. Uh, so this is an ideal time for charging them. Can you talk about this changing mindset? And again, countries like Norway, which you said, I believe 65, 70% of new cars sold in 2020 were EVs. So yeah. there is a revolution, and it looks like the Nordic countries are leading this revolution in terms of adoption of EVs. But my understanding is there are seven countries that will uh, outlaw 
new cars that are petrol uh, by 2030. So talk to us about this changing mindset that's required and how your company is helping folks really understand this new revolution, which we're at the beginning of. We're at the very beginning of what's going to end up being one of the biggest paradigm shifts from an infrastructure point of view in history, frankly. Just picture the world without gas stations, and now you're going to have all the gas stations in the next 20 years. That's the challenge, essentially, that's facing those of us who are involved in deploying electric vehicle charging infrastructure. But the great news is it's going to be a world which is very different. We're not going to have gas stations. People will not go somewhere special to, and hang around, not just special, but somewhere horrible, frankly. I mean, let's face it, none of us would go to a gas station unless we could buy gasoline there, regardless of all the other tricks that they, that, you know, coffee and things that they offer. At the end of the day, you go to a gas station to fuel up. In the future, you will fuel where you are already going. And you won't wait till your vehicle's empty. This is not a full, empty, full, empty scenario like we've been used to seeing over the last 130 years. We've become used to thinking that that's an efficient way of doing things. It isn't. What's going to end up happening is you're going to, you're going to charge your vehicle where you were already going and, frankly, whenever it's idle. And the good news is we're all used to this model already. Who amongst us waits till our cell phone is empty and then goes somewhere special and waits around where it fills up? Don't do that. You fuel your cell phone while you're at your desk, while you're sleeping, while you're eating, while you're doing something else. It's never a problem for you because there's always an opportunity for it to be filling up while you're doing something else. I can tell you that right now, while I'm talking to you, my electric vehicle is fueling. It's filling up and it, I frankly don't care how long it takes as long as it's full when I when I come back to it. Yeah. So if you're making products like ours, which work anywhere they can see the sky, I mean, we, we joke that we're driving on sunshine and we're a San Diego-based company. That seems to make sense. But I Oh, we might have lost. We lost your voice. New York City um, than we do in in Southern California. So this is a product that, although it's renewably energized, it works anywhere it can see the sun, uh, or anywhere it can see the sky. In fact, we don't even need direct sunlight. You're going to see these things already cropping up in workplace and across cities, and people will just be able to top off their vehicles uh, wherever they already stop for an hour, having lunch for an hour. They go to the office for a few hours. They go to the school or to the park. The vehicles will be filling up in all of these locations. And gone are the days of this gas station waiting around to fuel experience. And I can tell you, I've been doing it for 10 years. It's a far superior experience. You know, I'm, I'm definitely trying to, I definitely want to try one because I, I'm the guy that turned on the supercharging infrastructure for Tesla in the uh, beginning of 2012. They said it was on and I had literally had to call them up and like they literally had to send someone out to turn on the superchargers on my way from San Francisco to LA because I bought the car the day before and I completely believed them that the structure was out. But then I was like, this takes way too long and range anxiety suddenly to get into me. Like that charging anxiety, range anxiety might as well be an ICD-10 um, disease state uh, that should be classified it's like a real disorder like people get nervous about range and charging um tell us about how you're solving that problem the thing is it's all about ubiquity of charging infrastructure here's what we know the department of transportation tells us that the average u.s sedan drives 30.4 miles per day we all like to think that we're getting in canistoga wagons and you know traveling vast <laughs> distances across the midwest you know the, with arrows flying around but it isn't in fact like that the average u.s sedan drives 30.4 miles per day eight out of ten commuters require less than 24 miles for their round trip commute and we know that government fleet vehicles and enterprise fleet vehicles are typically driving 20 to 30 miles a day and by the way these are quite common across the globe these numbers except that americans do tend to drive a bit more than others. Now, that 30.4 miles per day can be replaced in your vehicle, with a, even with a relatively slow charger, in about an hour and a half. 
Nice. And so if you're driving 30.4 miles per day, even if you're driving at 15 miles per hour, that means 22 hours of the day that vehicle's idle somewhere. We're going to get you where that vehicle is idle and we're going to fill it up for you all the time. Now, the only instance where you're going to need something like a gas station experience is actually the one that you just described, which is where you're making a longer trip, San Diego to San Francisco or New York to Boston or something like that. And in that instance, you're going to want to get in and fuel up quickly and then get out. We do that as well. We do what's called DC fast charging. This is much nice. more like a gas station experience. But 95 or more percent of charging in the future will not take place in that manner. It's going to be top off charging, your vehicle's fueling, sipping, if you like, rather than gulping while you're doing something else. And from a quality of life point of view, this is just a vast improvement because you're now not making special trips to a location which, as I say, none of us would ever choose to go to a gas station unless we were you know, buying illicit drugs or gasoline. <laughs> what are the other I agree with you. Come I agree. on, I still like my truck stops. No, it's only when my son <laughs> wants Slim Jim snacks. Yeah. I don't want to explore that. <laughs> uh, so so I, I, I've heard you talk about the single shift that took place to allow technology to exist was battery technology. Yes. Energy density, cost thermal management of battery technology allowed your company to produce EVR charging systems. Talk to us about your excitement about the fast-paced innovation in the battery space. Take us on a journey five, 10 years from now. Where, what can we expect in terms of the innovation space that's happening in, on the battery side? Well, this is what's so fantastic about our industry, frankly, which is that it's not just batteries. It's all of our ability to convert renewable sources of, of power into electricity. Think about the future that we're moving into. We, we live in an era where today you've got gasoline for motorcycles and cars, diesel for trucks and buses, bunker oil for ships, kerosene for airplanes, different fuel sorts for, for, for all these different types of modes of transportation. They are all going to be replaced by electrons in the next couple of decades. This is one of the most things, the things that's so fantastic. So we're going to go to a, an era where we have diverse business models, but the same source of fuel powering all of uh, transportation. The reason that we're so excited about this is because you're quite right. We're seeing advances in battery technology. We're seeing the cost coming down, energy density going up, reliability going up. We're seeing the, our ability to convert those renewable sources, whether those are sunlight or wind or uh, into electricity in much more efficient manners. All the while, our costs are coming down, our efficiencies are going up. And at the same time, we're not doing this in an extractive or destructive way at all. Uh, this is this is basically, as I like to say about driving on sunshine, you get to drive emissions free, environmental impact free, guilt free, and the best free of all, in many cases, free free. Uh, and this is largely driven by these new advances in technology. Just a decade ago, when we first started making our EVR product, we simply could not figure out how to get through thermal management, get the energy density that we wanted, especially not in an economic package. But here we are, uh, 10 years later, we've seen fantastic advances, precipitous drops in price, uh, pre equally precipitous increase in efficiencies and energy density. And that means that our products are just getting better and better, putting more electric miles into vehicles uh, every day. Uh, and all the while, it's getting harder and harder to do the old traditional stuff. So this is a great uh, revolution. It's great for the consumer. It's going to be great for the planet. If you care about that, you don't have to. Uh, and uh, frankly, uh, you know, on a, from a purely selfish point of view, it's going to be great for our shareholders. I want a follow-up question. I know the Beam products are in about 100 states already. But um, what was really interesting to me that your products are all rated for hurricane force winds. So when we think about what we've witnessed in the past 12 months, like the grid instability, for example, in Texas, can you talk to us about how your solutions can help provide 
uh, redundancy and a greater level of stability when we're talking about the grid? You know, we have a, a strategic petroleum reserve in this country, um, which, which is right. to ensure that we, we right. never run out of diesel or gasoline. This came about during the 70s, during the, the, the gas crisis. Right. So strategic petroleum reserve. There is no strategic electric reserve. We know this, right? Uh, it, it doesn't require hurricanes. Uh, every time everybody turns up their air conditioning in New York City or in California, we have the, the utilities turn the power off for a while. Uh, in our case over here as well, we have dangers of wildfires caused by uh, this infrastructure, this, this solar infrastructure. So it's very clear that we need other means of delivering the electricity to these vehicles, quite apart from the fact that the grid simply does not have enough capacity to support the electrification, not even by half, in fact. Again, remember, when you, turn, when you get a blackout in New York during August, it's because people are using too much electricity. So the power company has to start turning things off. Once you start adding electrification of transportation into that mix, you're going to uh, only exacerbate that problem. So the idea of having locally stored and locally generated electricity that doesn't require on the centralized grid infrastructure, which has centralized vulnerabilities, is absolutely essential uh, to our stability moving forward. We actually like to think that our products are contributing to the strategic electric reserve for the fuel of the future, which is what electricity is. It, it is the fuel already of the present, but increasingly in the future. We need to have this resiliency. We need to have distributed infrastructure that is immune to centralized failure. Our products, yes. I mean, flood proof to nine and a half feet. Uh, you can imagine how valuable that was in New York City during Ida. Uh, <laughs> although we're wow. rated for 120 mile an hour winds, we have survived 185 mile an hour category five winds down in the Caribbean. We got a letter from our customer, the government down there saying that our product was the only thing that survived that. So electricity after air and water, frankly, <laughs> and food, Air, water, and food. Electricity is the next most important sort of commodity that all human being, beings need. And the truth is, we even rely on electricity for our food and water now, uh, and as cleaning up our air as well. But so there's hardly anything more important. So having resilient and distributed infrastructure that will continue to operate during these centralized failures, whether those are weather created or terrorism created, or let's face it, we know the Russians, the Iranians uh, have been in, uh, and the Chinese have hacked into our grid infrastructure. So we've got lots of vulnerabilities. Uh, the way to solve for it is to have lots of distributed infrastructure that's, that's immune to centralized failure. And that's what we're doing. You know, it's a great point. And, and one of the big challenges is that decentralization of generation uh, and distribution, right? The transmission grids and transitions are there. Um, what one of the other barriers I've been hearing about is not anything to do with the technology nor anything to do with where we are electrification, but really the pension funds for the utilities. They're fighting it. Um, we got pension funds that are fighting uh, electrification and decentralization of power because there's no real good way to tax you on your free energy from the sun. Um, what do you see there? What's going on there in terms of the barrier there? And also, what are you seeing in terms of that movement for decentralization that you're talking about? Because soon every car is a decentralized power plant uh, for the home or for the grid or for emergency cases. And then I have a secondary question really about what baseline capacity we need, uh, how many megawatts would you need in terms of storage uh, for uh, battery storage and have battery strategic reserve, um, even in a decentralized model? Yeah, so... Look, you bring up a lot of very interesting points there. Of course, any time there's any sort of revolution, you're going to have an incumbent who's not going to want to see that revolution take place. Yep, yep. And the electrification of transportation, particularly where we're using renewable energy to make that happen, is going to be one of the most significant revolutions in our history. 
have to apologize. I'll have to apologize. I've got the you Marine flying overhead at the moment, by the way. <laughs> um, that's the noise that you're hearing. We're in the flight path of the Marine Corps Air Station at Miramar. So from time to time, they fly yep, over. Yep, yep. I was going to say, it sounds anyway. like Miramar. <laughs> yeah. So, so here's, a, here's a revolution. It's going to be a revolution in fuel type. It's going to be a revolution in business models. And it's going to be a revolution in terms of the types of businesses that deliver uh, these things to you. And whereas, as I said, wherever that's the case, you're going to have incumbents that don't like it. It's not just the pension funds. But a big part of where the pension funds are coming from is the way they finance grid infrastructure. You're talking about 30, 40 year financing. They, yep. you, you know, it's it's pretty hard to cut anywhere into that and suddenly say, hang on a minute, we're, maybe we don't want to end a life this thing or we don't want to wait for it to, to end of life. But of course, there are all sorts of other vested interests in there. People who are in the extractive businesses, the polluting businesses, the businesses, usual businesses. And then frankly, just a lack of imagination on the part of government leadership and uh, all of the rest of us, right? It takes a while to adopt these new technologies. So it's going to be a bit of a hump to get over. Now, the good news is this is one of those revolutions where no one's head has to roll. OK, we, this, it's, it, it, we, no one loses here as long as people are willing to, t- to, uh, to, to move forward with this. We, we're going to end up in America where we have more reliable fuel, where we have much less expensive fuel, where consumers are running around in vehicles which are more fun to own, less expensive to own, don't require maintenance and hell of a lot more fun to drive. So basically, this is an everyone win situation. Yeah. Uh, we just have to make sure that those people who are entrenched and involved in the existing infrastructure find a way to benefit from the new things. And you can see it Look at big oil today. Look at Shell. Look at BP. BP used to stand for British Petroleum. It now stands for Beyond Petroleum. Okay. These companies are investing vast sums of money in renewables yeah. and in the electrification of transportation because they know that yeah. there's an end coming to this, uh, to, the, to, the, to the oil age, if you like. They know that's yeah. going to happen. They can either go the way of the dinosaurs. Uh, or they can get engaged and invest the capital uh, that they have in the, in these new technologies moving forward. And I think we're seeing that today, and I'm certain that we will see it across the board. And for those people who don't get on board, frankly, the meteor is coming. The asteroid is coming for those dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had a chief executive from Repsol um, on our show a few months ago, and they now own the largest charging system in Spain. So another the largest energy producer who's really shifting their investment thesis towards renewables in a very aggressive way. So you're absolutely right. You're yeah, absolutely we should right. probably connect you to her as part of the uh, Disrupt yeah. TV alumni. That'd be great. So we'll do yeah. that. But here, we're, we're here with Desmond Wheatley, CEO of Beam Global. You can follow him at Twitter at Desmond Wheatley, W-A-H-E-A-T-L-E-Y. Thank you so much for being on the show today. So see you in the green room. Thank you, Desmond. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, everybody, for paying attention. Terrific. An awesome example of a passionate CEO putting a dent in the universe, as Steve Jobs used to say. Speaking of an incredible CEO, our next guest is Faryal Kanbabi, CEO of Dialyte. Faryal uh, is also chairman of the Dialyte Foundation. Dialyte is a world leader in LED industrial lighting technology with millions of LED fixtures installed worldwide. Prior to Dialyte, Fariel occupied the position of Chief Financial Officer for Blue Ocean Group and Chief Financial Officer of Britannia Bulk Holdings. Fariel, congratulations, is the 2020 winner of Silver Stevie Award in Woman of the Year in the manufacturing category. This is an incredibly prestigious award. You can follow uh, Dialyte on Twitter at D-I-A-L-I-G-H-T. Welcome, Fariel, to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much for having me. 
Great yeah, welcome, welcome. We're excited to have you here. Um, as you can tell, we've been talking a lot about where the future is headed uh, and where you know anything from energy and ESGs are out there. Um, what are the major shifts you're seeing um, currently in the industrial sector, especially after COVID-19 and recent social and economic challenges that have been in play? Well, I think the one thing that um, COVID-19 has taught us is it's very difficult to make any predictions about the future. <laughs> so many communities and companies um, had well-laid, well-crafted plans, and you know they weren't agile enough to accommodate how much the conditions changed. And you know, one of the trickiest things that I see is is how are we going to identify a new set of priorities? I mean, throughout this crisis, we coped with the ever-shifting situation, um, but there are many other urgent issues that us as CEOs, as companies, need to be at the forefront of, and that includes sustainability, digitalization, and the competition for talent that we're seeing. You know, our customers are, and customers across every industry are placing such a higher value on sustainability of products based on the, their carbon footprint and their ability to recycle those products. Um, and, you know, this is spurred on by the whole renewable energy, as we described with your previous speaker, and the whole decarbonization of transport. And there is an, it, there will continue to be an increased demand for more sustainable materials. And COVID-19 has really accelerated this point. The pandemic um, focused everyone on health and safety first. And there's, it also focused us very much on remote. I mean, who would have thought two years ago that we would have spent two years virtually housebound? So the whole um, remote and digital sales channel is, is, is a trend that we just are continuing to see grow and organizations have to be able to adjust to that. Um, one of the biggest issues we are facing as many companies is the whole supply chain disruption and the shortages. Um, and, and we have an obligation to ensure that our supply chains are ethically sourced. We have, they have fair labor practices. And that's going to lead to much more creative partnerships. Um, and I also believe um, digitalization of core business processes is going to be key in the industrial sector. That's an incredible set of priorities that, uh, you know, as a, as a CEO, it's uh, that you have to champion and see through. And of course, one of the very strong focus areas for you and Dialight and the company is your commitment to diversity. In fact, Dialight uh, is the only gender balanced board, has the only gender balanced board on the London Stock Exchange, which is an incredible achievement. Can you talk about uh, the importance of equality for Dialight and how that will shape the sector and, and, our, and our future? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's we're, we're seeing more women slowly rising up the ranks, but there is still a massive gap in the number of women that hold top level positions. I mean, I still go to events, many events, um, where you're, you know, one of three or four women in a room of two, three hundred men. Oh um, so it is changing, but it's changing very slowly. But I think, you know, one of the things COVID's done is if you look at remote working, I mean, that's really the new normal and, and it's changing the way we 
we work with our teams, how the managers keep their employees productive and happy. And at the same time, we're adopting new attitudes to work-life balance and gender representation in the workplace. And how best do we empower that next generation of leaders? And these changes bring huge opportunities for the way we all work. And female business leaders are, are taking the reins. Hmm. Uh, in, employees develop new needs as they move from a physical office to a remote working um, place. And, you know, we've all had to adapt. And female managers, especially in Dalai, have really stepped up to give their teams the support necessary to thrive in this transition. And as female leaders, we tend to be um, pretty empathetic, um, giving them, giving our, you know, there's no one size that fits all. And, and, and our female leaders have been great at going above and beyond of making our employees feel that they're not just part of the whole rat race. And, you know, we, we live in a world that celebrates self-belief, but it's much more important and at least it's one of our core values to have self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And you know, often there's a conflict between the two. And I think women are much more critical of themselves. I, I remember um, a conversation with my chairman and he goes, I'm going to tell you all the things you did great, but you're only going to remember the one thing I think you need to work on. And, and, and so we, we over-prepare, and, and that's a good thing because it increases your confidence and increases your performance. And we're not very good at taking the glory. So humility is, is a really important trait, and that inspires your workforce to follow you. And overall, it's not about being male or female. It's about diversity, and companies need that to succeed. The best gender equality intervention is to focus on the equality of talent and potential. And that only happens when we have gender equal leadership to enable men to learn different leadership approaches from women, as much as women have been told to learn leadership approaches from men. It's a very exciting time to be a female ex executive and changing the norms bring new challenges to the global business world. I love that, such sage advice, that was terrific. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree. And one of the things that we're spending a lot of time on, we're, we're launching a big idea report on ESGs next week, right? When we think about the ESG initiatives, you are, you know, we break up with environmental, social governance, anything from affordable and clean energy, which uh, you definitely are part of that and the decarbonization movement. And then thinking about the social aspects from consumer protections to diversity, equality, making sure that you've got human rights in your sourcing practices. And of course, uh, areas around governance, around, you know, even talking about chief sustainability officers in that mix. Um, what's on your list? What are you championing uh, in terms of ESGs that support the 17 SDGs uh, that the United Nations have been talking about for quite some time? Well, COVID has just caused an unprecedented level of disruption in the ecosystem. I mean, the situation has been unpredictable. Mm -hmm. It's impacted every industry, every geography, every operating model. And then you compound this by complex supply chain and, and the global travel restrictions. It's a time of real uncertainty and you know esg really provides the foundations to create resilience in a business esg is not only about protecting the environment it's about treating your employees fairly it's also about long-term growth considerations we at dialect we're focusing on reaching our net zero target by 2040 
reducing our carbon footprint for all our materials and our operations. We're in the process of certifying the carbon footprint of all of our products so customers know what they're purchasing and what the reduction in emissions that they can achieve. We're also very heavily focused on the ethical treatment of our own workers and our suppliers' workers. We have zero tolerance for injuries, zero harm to our people. We're also very heavily invested in the communities that we operate by setting up our own foundation. And we're also embracing digital transformation as an opportunity to making doing business easier for all, leveraging tools to better support our staff, our customers, and our other stakeholders, and also provide a simple, accessible forum for learning wherever you are in the world. We're also creating opportunities for growth and development for our own employees and the future industrial workforce. And this is especially important for women where the barriers to entry, the glass ceilings are a little mm. bit tougher. That's terrific. That's terrific. Uh, Fario, I read um, uh, an interview with you where you talked about giving yourself advice uh, to the younger version of you. And you said, um, you know, before you started your journey as a CFO and CEO, and you said uh, you need to be persistent. You said that's an important, and you need to show perseverance. Perseverance is very important. Uh, be 100% passionate about whatever you do. So perseverance and passion. You said the people and the relationships you make with them in the workplace is important. So value relationships and show appreciation. And you said pay it forward. So those were advice you would give to, your, to, to yourself uh, when, uh, early in your career. And you also gave advice to women leaders in terms of supporting each other. Yeah. So my question to you is, you know, we always appreciate having mentors, folks that can coach us and give us constructive advice, but the importance of a sponsor, someone who is maybe higher in the organization and they put their social and political capital online to help you accelerate and improve your career trajectory. Can you talk to us about your passion and commitment and being a, both a mentor and a sponsor? Yeah, I can talk. Um, I mean, I was um, CFO of, of Dalet for five and a half years. And um, the previous CEO, um, CEO um, decided to retire. And I was thinking, oh gosh, you know, what do I want to do? It's time to move on. And, and the chairman at the time, he was actually our largest shareholder and runs um, Generation Investment Fund, who, which is all about um, ESG, said, well, will you, you do it? And at the time I thought, mm, okay. <laughs> and, and he's been a terrific, terrific mentor for me. And, and actually, you know, helped me think outside the box, pushed, boundaries um, and, and you have to believe that you can do it and and I think what's so important for um, for, for, the, for not only the, the female but the, but the male um, employees we have that they see first of all a female can lead an industrial company and an ethnic female is as, as that so there is no glass ceiling I mean you you, you work hard and, and you do. And, and you you um, you build a culture within within a company. That's amazing. You've shattered all the glass ceilings that exist, and it speaks to your comp your company's culture clearly: inclusivity, empathy, a beginner's mindset. 
Um, and as you said, perseverance and paying it forward is, is it's, it's a living example of the dialect. So it's a, it's a very inspirational story. And thank you for sharing. Go ahead, Ray. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no problem. I was going to ask you about the, the ESG goals for your company right now. I mean, industrial companies are typically a tough place uh, to do that. Um, you talked about some of the hiring practices that you're in place. Uh, I think there's other pieces, you know, that you're probably doing, you know, partially, you know, thinking about the green issues. And of course, you know, in, in your business, I mean, you guys have moved very rapidly to, you know, low energy, uh, lead lighting, low energy uh, management as well. And lots of folks are looking at building management, smart buildings along with the you know, technical aspects of that. I'm sure a little bit about what you guys do and, and what, what is, what is in the product portfolio and what are some things in the future that will also help uh, right. with energy consumption and management? I'm extremely passionate about Dalite. Um, and, and, and actually, we, we have been grounded with sustainability, right? I mean, that's our, our, our core value proposition. And to see the whole ESG messaging um, and, and the whole focus, especially from your customers, from your investors. And actually, if you're not um, dealing with your your ESG commitment, you're actually uninvestable as a company in the future. Mm. My aim is for us to be the greenest company in, in the sector that we operate in. I mean, the industrial sector is very unique. It includes some of the most harshest and most dangerous working conditions on the planet. And the safety of the people working in those sites is of paramount importance as explosions, fires, other risks that they deal with every single day. And Dialyte, we are the leader in this space. And we're actually um, celebrating our 50th year now as a, as a pure yeah. play and the only lighting company. And we're really proud of our longstanding heritage. I mean, for example, a recent installation we did at a chemical company, we saved them over 500 kilowatt hours in electricity each year and $50,000 in annual maintenance fee. Wow. I mean, that installation was done seven years ago. There hasn't been a, a single fixture failure in seven years. And there's wow. countless examples that I can cite of how much we saved our, our customers. And one of the things that was very important to me, and we started this initiative um, during COVID, was, you know, everyone talks about ESG, but unless you can measure it, and unless you can track track it, I mean, it, it doesn't mean anything. Mm. So we're certifying all of our products from, from an external agency. We will have the most energy efficient um, high bay fixture, which, which will launch in a couple of weeks time. And, um, and just being able to get that message out and this is an easy way for customers to hit their their esg and reduce their carbon emissions is to change their lighting that's amazing that's amazing uh, my final question is um you know more focused on the spirit of generosity at dialyte uh in terms of supporting the community in the last you know certainly the last 18 months which you know we're all struggling uh, due to the due to the pandemic, of course. Can you talk about uh, the Dialyte Foundation and some of the projects that the foundation has taken on to really address the needs of the community in the past year, year, year and a half? Absolutely. I mean, this is something really, really dear to my heart. I mean, I believe that if you're a proactive modern business with a heart, then you have an obligation to give back to society. 
We know many of our employees expect our business to be putting back into society. So a structured way of doing that was to have our own foundation. Um, we saw firsthand the impact of COVID, especially in Mexico, where our largest workforce resides. And we set up the foundation to help the community with a focus on children and women's causes. We mm. raised about $60,000 um, through a GoFundMe, and that went to support three orphanages in Ensenada and Tijuana. Yeah. We made donations of furniture, basic supplies. We also um, provided backpacks and filled them full of school supplies for two elementary schools in North Carolina, where we have another facility. And just recently, we partnered with the Women's Earth Alliance, and we provided a major donation to help aid the COVID climate and migrant crisis in Tijuana, which in the past couple of months alone has helped provide food, information to thousands of asylum seekers, and provided shelter and legal services. Yeah. And you know, this is just part of being um, being invested in the communities which you reside in, which is just so important. That's amazing. Yeah. Well done. Well done. Yeah. You know, as everyone says, like, you know, it's it's about putting purpose to profits and uh, no margin, no mission. So all very, very, uh, very important things. We're here with Fario Kambabi, the CEO at Dialite, a pioneer, a women leader, and more importantly, someone who's caring for the environment in the industrial sector. Thank you so much for being here. You can follow the company at D-I-A-L-I-G-H-T. Thank you for being here. Happy Friday. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, it, it, incredible. Inc another incredible CEO <laughs> just doing fantastic work. All right. It's uh, our privilege uh, to have our, this is our a cleanup hitter spot where a guest comes in and hits a grand slam. For our, so no pressure on our 250th episode. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Clean up. No pressure at all. No pressure. It's our privilege to uh, have Michael Mollis, Senior Vice President of Innovation and Strategy at Salesforce. Michael is one of the world's foremost CRM, customer experience, customer engagement management experts. Michael was one of the first creators of CRM space and a member of the first global CRM software company. Michael joined Salesforce from Gartner where he was founder of the CRM practice and held positions as a research vice president, distinguished analyst, and a Gartner fellow. You can follow Michael on Twitter at M-I-M-A-O-Z. Welcome back, Michael, to Disrupt TV. Hey, guys. How are you? Great to have you. Hey, we're so excited to have you. It's been quite some time. It's been some time. I, I, I was pre-masked. Like, yeah. <laughs> before <laughs> pandemic, and now there's amidst endemic. It's an endemic now. You're a busy guy. You're a busy guy. We're we've been trying to get you on the show for some time, so we're yeah, happy you're here. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad we're able, and especially right before Dreamforce, where we're right. just going through the last minute. Every every two minutes, it, it, it changes <laughs> just a little bit. We want to get that you know, just just right, um, but but really excited. And I, I guess you know, if I'm the cleanup of Cal Ripken, I'm not really hitting. <laughs> You'll be fine. You'll be fine. Singles. I love that Cal Ripken. You'll reference. be fine. Yes. But marathon you know, man. Yeah. You know, but you've been talking about excellence, right? And it's not just normal excellence. You've been talking about having excellence at scale, right? So pervasive brand excellence at scale has been something you're talking about. Share us a little bit about this. Like, some, what are some of the ingredients? Where do you want to head with this? Why is it so important now? Yeah, and what you've been seeing, how long has it been going on this whole CRM thing, right? <laughs> we've been talking about this. I don't know. Before. We were at the beginning of this. You tell I, me. I, I, I Day one. Right? <laughs> Right. Though we did have Maylin Fung on, uh, if you remember Maylin, so, but yes. Uh, yeah, I, I have all, all these kids here that are dedicated <laughs> to it. 
Um, <laughs> but you know, we've been through it, and you think, well, here it is, thirty some years into this uh, CRM thing, and it's really no longer about CRM. And uh, I would think it's almost like going back to what we talked about, maybe in the past, would be brand management, because you really think about, is it really customer relationship, or is it really the whole brand entirely? If you want to talk about it that way, isn't it the entire enterprise? So the question yeah. really goes all the way back to how do you do enterprise excellence at scale? That's, uh, there's so many dimensions to it, and I'm going to just dive into one of the dimensions. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, obviously culture, people, process, technology. I'm going to jump into an emerging tech, AI. And it's because you wrote an incredibly profound article, uh, and it was titled, How to Choose an AI Strategy on Salesforce. And you stated a number of takeaways because you speak to business ex executives across all lines of business and not just service line of business. And you said that the most successful use case of AI comes from businesses that shape, that started with a business process first and how, and then ask how can AI improve the, uh, the, the, the process. You said AI adoption in enterprise continues to accelerate as it transitions from technology into an embedded feature to a wide set of business applications. And you said AI winners are process first. And you listed why an architect is an important role because of the complexity and the dimensions. And you talked about skill acquisition, data governance, cross enterprise coordination, ethics and legal uh, and privacy controls and, and considerations. And you ended this, and, and we'll send the link to our audience so they can read it. You, you ended with, with, with the comment, you said the confluence of six advances, ubiquitous cloud-based apps, AI, data analytics, integration and communications, such as Slack, chat, chatbots, messaging, has launched an innovation revolution and architects will be more in demand than ever. So my question as you talk about AI at scale, can you talk a little bit about the role of the architect and this combinatorial effect of all these technologies that will help shape companies in a better position to win? Yeah, and you know, looking at who in the organization has a feel for what can be done, it's really people in, in IT, it's really data scientists, it's really the architects. They're the ones who are in the guts of the machine. And if you go back to Clay Christensen and jobs to be done, when you match up what an architect can do together with the people who are all the way out on the outside, what you want to call outside, what are our, where are our partners falling short? Where are our customers falling short? Where are our suppliers falling short? Where are our employees struggling? So rather than say, hey, you know, there's all this cool stuff, machine learning, there's all this great stuff in, in computing, but what exactly is it going to do for me? So suddenly you say, well, I, I know it can be more proactive and it can detect a, a state change. AI is great at that. Right? All it's doing is inferential reasoning on larger and larger and larger data sets. That's all it is. Simply put, AI, you're already here. <laughs> Instead of making something incredibly complicated, it's inferential reasoning on data sets. That's all it is. Which is why you know, the thing that plays Go can't play baseball. You can't do it. It's unidimensional, but gigantic. So if we look at, a, at an issue, we always want to get to what is going to really make it so the customer or any employee is really feeling the love. And, and I always look at that like, what are the things? Think about AI. What do I want to apply? I want to say, what is going to make them feel the love? And I always think, why are you not doing more in this voice of the customer? And I don't mean to do run, run a survey because surveys, 
I mean, most common answer to what is your name in a survey in the United States five years ago was Mickey Mouse. So clearly, it's not Mickey Mouse. Most of all, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm actually pretty close to that, but not. But anyway, <laughs> what's the customer? You can look at things like, what is your stress level right now? Mm -hmm. Everybody in the whole world goes through interaction with a business, with a government, with any institution. You can ask the question between zero and four, right? Five levels. Uh, one, postal, I feel postal, and <laughs> I, I, I'm glad I took my meds today. Over to, I'm, I'm in Nirvana. It's, it, it's a beautiful thing that you can have <laughs> billions of interactions and still instantaneously figure out A-B testing. This is what went wrong and send it back. You can say, are you satisfied from zero to four? And one is, I want a divorce. The second is, you had me at home. It's, it's very simple. And then you say, well, what? Define that and personalize. The first one is um, it, calling prisoner 24601. Jean Valjean, step forward. I didn't know it was Jean Valjean. Over to, wow, it was kind of creepy, but in a nice way. I liked it. You can measure these things. And finally, did you land this process on my channel? All right, so mm. I have two parents, many of us do. Um, one is almost 90. And he does not have a mobile phone. He's like, if they want to find me, they'll knock on the door. And I have a mom <laughs> who is also really kind of old, younger than him. And she's like doing screen grabs from her FaceTimes and posting them on TikTok. I'm like, what the wow. hell? Wow. You can't do that. You're like 84 <laughs> years old. <laughs> but when you get to all of that, AI can say, hey, that person, it's not a, it's not a demographic issue. She's in a certain psychographic. Living right next to the same education, living in the same household, with the same income, is this cat over here. And yet they're different. So I can start to personalize interactions. Mm -hmm. I just created create a sense of trust, of closeness, of personalization using AI. So the architects may understand how you do this. So you get people in marketing and sales and service, e-commerce, they all have there's definitely you know, Persian tale of the blind man feeling the elephant. Right? They all have their sense. This is the trunk. This is the hide. Uh, these are the ears. This is the ear. But the but people when they come together, the architects are seen across the enterprise and yeah. across the ecosystem. Yeah. And they will say, well, you know, here is where we think AI can do a good job at crossing right, get the gap between what we think we're doing with the customer. And what we are doing to the customer, the yeah. Peter Drucker, right? You don't sell the customer what the customer buys. There's two different things. Customer buying experience, you're selling your product or service. Well, Michael, someone's someone's knocking at my door, like uh, what your uh, father's thinking about. Uh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I don't want any coming by the house knocking at the door. <laughs> That's not the way to go. But hey, you know, to tie back some of the stuff some of our other guests have been talking about around cool. sustainability. <laughs> sustainable oh who's knocking at the door we also talk about sustainable at scale uh, that's another one of those things let's let's start there and talk about sustainable at scale so you analyze your uh, at scale model yeah because again sustainable today is fitting into the overall is can you create a trust enterprise a trusted enterprise and if you think about just 20 years ago you know, no one really thought that much about it. Of course, you know, Rachel Carson and Silent Spring goes pretty far back. <laughs> True. And you know, Al Gore was, was, was speaking about this and Earth Day was many, 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 many years ago. So we have had, uh, you had all sorts of snippets. We, we, we've known this for many, 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 many years. 
And now there is this influence, right? Now you can actually make a lot of money at this. We hear the hosts, it's not, they're not suddenly becoming altruistic. It's when there's money to be made. And of course, one of the greats, Elon Musk, he was one of the people who really, really put a lot, a lot of weight behind all this. But there were other people too. Around the world, we see that the ESG is something that's not only good for the planet, but it's also good for business. When you see those two go together, then you know, it's, it's not like, oh, I think I'm going to take all the uh, old fat from uh, you know, Wendy's and put it in my in my van, and it's going to smell like hell. But it will get me a good good mileage. Hey, come right? on, Back to the Future. Done that. But the second part about that, and it's almost like a corollary that we're missing, is it really matters to our employees. And if you look at again the part of the ethical enterprise, so if we're looking at DEI, there's what ESG is what is really close behind. You find that the best workers, the people you really want to hold on to, at, at every level from the top down to the bottom, they're looking to work for not only an ethical enterprise, but they're also looking at one that's giving back to the community, and they're also looking at one that is doing its role. It thinks about you know, net zero, they're thinking about carbon sequestering, they're thinking about clean oceans, they're thinking about all these things and they think in the same way that back in the 70s maybe people who want to work for, for arms manufacturers. Today, people who create carbon are the arms manufacturers. I don't want to work for them, I'll go somewhere else. And a talent pool that is so constricted today, the greats are, are hard to come by at all levels, from the people who clean toilets to the C-suite. They're very difficult to find and now they're more mobile than ever. They can be sourced globally, wherever they are. So something like sustainability becomes a key value in attracting and maintaining those kind of people. Absolutely. And, and, and just to follow up on that, you've talked a lot about scaling trust. And especially in the last year and a half, and the fact that we're all struggling due to the pandemic, and you've written and you've talked about how customer success is critical to business growth, it's critical to establishing trust. You wrote an article that said it's time to up-level the role of service agents. And you said, to, this is the call to action to business leaders. You explicitly said, you have to be highly prescriptive about this. In that custom service organizations have suddenly needed greater resilience and far better technology to be successful. You talked about the importance uh, and the potential impact with security breaches and uptime and bandwidth. You talked about agents having greater autonomy. Uh, and, and in terms of their work hours, you talked about the use of multiple channels and flexibility that's needed in order to, again, engage with customers where the conversation is taking place. You ultimately said even managers need to have better real-time analysis of customer service resource demands, media channels, time of day, uh, factoring, you know, seasonal fluctuations, so on and so forth. So your call to action was that heads of customer service need to champion, educate, inspire other line of business leaders to understand yeah. that customer-facing yeah. yeah. functions in a business play a vital role in terms of scaling trust. Can you talk about, have you observed, because again, you're guiding CEOs and CROs and C-suite on a daily basis. Have you observed that there's a greater sense of urgency for business leaders to really ensure that they're building and continuing to improve their service capabilities in order to scale trust? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things you're seeing is that there's already a notion beginning to percolate up that customer service is not a department. This, this notion that you go to customer service is so outmoded. It's everyone is a customer service person. Everyone is responsible for customer excellence. 
in the same way that everyone is responsible for the success of the enterprise. So right, I look at it and I think, well, if you're in an enterprise, like I am not my brother or my sister's keeper. Well, you are. Sorry, but you are. And especially during a pandemic, especially when that person may have issues in, in their home, in their home life. They might not have the same abilities to have business as usual, business continuity. They might be a single mom or dad or, or whatever they might be. Some are unemployed, some are you know, compromised. So we've learned that, in fact, you are responsible. You are your neighbor's keeper. And the second, you have to be responsible for every, every action you take. And the third reason is this, you really need to be passionate. You've heard the other folks who are on this program today, like yourself, incredibly passionate. You can feel the passion coming out of the force. And you might say, well, CEO, of course, they've got a best interest in passion. But it's not just that. They actually feel it. And you know, my own CEO, Mark Danioff, he gets on stage, and you feel it. Because so off stage, he's doing the same thing. He's cleaning the oceans here when he's helping a community. He tells people in Texas, employees, you want to move to Texas? Come, come to me. We'll get you out of Texas. So this idea of, of bringing passion, watching out for others, and being accountable to yourself is all fitting in with you. Also, this is, that, that, that's because customer service is not that department over there when something goes wrong. Because first of all, if something goes wrong, then already you failed. It didn't go wrong because the customer service agent did it. The customer agent, whether it be she or they, does well or does not do well, it's usually very downstream from a product person who did it wrong, or a billing person who did it wrong, or an engineer who got it wrong, or a CEO who had a half-foot strategy. It's not that, so it needs to be solved often where the problem stood. And that could be in marketing, could be in product, it could be in a retail, could be in a partner, it could be online. You have this little Kafka bit that detected there was an outage and you couldn't do the, the, the proactive message to the customer. And that brings us back to architects and AI. Because How does it always come back to architects? Come on. I love that. <laughs> it's true. Oh, it's come back. Yeah, you know it always goes back to architects. How is this even no. possible? <laughs> just, just going back to the earlier point about AI and architects, these are things we, that's when you go back. As opposed to what we said, Here's AI looking for a problem. It's when you get this thing of hey, the customer experience is why I said ultimately it's about the brand management. It's the brand. It's pervasive. It's it's goes across every single aspect, and that is how you, you tackle this. Not by saying tech support, customer service, uh, self service. It's when the entire enterprise and beyond the entire partner ecosystem. And that ultimately, when that rolls up into things working together, that's when you get trust. You know, it's an appreciation I have because we all know remarkable work is hard to scale. <laughs> by, by by name, it's just by it's just just you know, unfortunately, it, it's 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 time tested truth. So, and all these dimensions of scaling towards consistent excellence, from ethics to trust to talent to process to leadership to culture, it's uh, and and you know, as you mentioned, our two, first two guests, you clearly saw two passionate CEOs. As you said, Michael, so correctly, they feel a sense yeah. of responsibility, which, which, which the way they answer and the way there's a sense of accountability and passion and perseverance that uh, that's common to all remarkable CEOs or CXOs, recognizing it's hard to scale remarkable work. You really, you know, you have to constantly challenge yourself and push yourself. So it's a really important topic. And thank you for all the writing that you're doing in terms of opening. You know, sharing your learnings with us. Uh, 
the, the AI article and uplifting service organizations are really incredible reads. And again, we'll share that link with our audience. Thank you very much. Yeah, I want to talk about, you know, this is amazing because when we think about brands, we don't often think about these components and ingredients that you talk about. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It is really a reflection of the uh, organization, uh, just as much as you could have a personal brand, uh, that impact at the corporate yeah, level. You know, to that point, Ray, we get to another, another time, but get two aspects of that. You know, one is in the last uh, 10 or 12 years, the organization is largely untested. You know, we've had mm -hmm. digitization, had a pandemic, but then we've had money falling from the sky. So we've been 12 or 13 years, and really very few of our leaders have known anything but a rising tide. And it's really going to come down to when you have a sinking tide. It is true. We've never had that happen. They haven't been challenged. Uh, economies haven't been challenged like this before. So we've actually, uh, you know, actually seeing a different kind of approach. We're here with Michael Miles, Senior Vice President, Innovation Strategy at Salesforce. You can follow him on Twitter at M-I-M-A-O-Z. Um, definitely a great follow on Twitter. So take care. Grand slam, Michael. Grand slam. Thank you. Happy Friday. <laughs> You're terrific. Wow. <laughs> 250. 250. And I got to tell you. How many guests is that? How many guests is that? 765 guests. I knew you were keeping count. 765. <laughs> I update my preparation document every week with a counter. So, 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 and, and we're getting close to 800. So that's a milestone I want us to keep an eye on. You know, we definitely should celebrate our thousandth unique guest. That will be crazy. Yeah, that would be that would be amazing. And I, just, you know, two incredible CEOs and a pioneer in the customer relationship management, literally one of the first people um, to build a CRM solution and talk about, you know, systematic scaling and building process around customer experience and customer engagement management. Ray, closing, uh, well, closing thoughts before we talk about next week's episode. <laughs> it was, it was an incredible, incredible uh, three well, guests. 250 episodes in, I think what we've learned is that, you know, we've got great, there's so many great people within the network. And uh, I'm hoping at some point in, you know, some point in time, we'll be able to expand this network out, really build a bigger community of folks who really appreciate, you know, early adopters, innovators, people think outside the box, different points of view. Uh, and, and I think that's what we've built here. And I really want to thank our audience. Uh, I mean, it really is. I mean, we get great suggestions on guests. We get great suggestions of who to talk with. Uh, and of course, more importantly, your sharing of that information and insights is really valuable to us. What about you, Vala? Yeah, I, it's my favorite hour of the week uh, because I'm a student for an hour. You know, I, I go back and watch the shows. I, I often write about the shows and my takeaways. So, um, and it's sometimes the second or third time I watch a show when I, I realize, my goodness, this was a gold nugget. This sentence really means a lot, <laughs> you know, because as we're doing the show, we're thinking about the next question. We're trying to absorb the answers. And uh, so I find myself watching the show uh, more than once. And uh, I've had so many aha moments. It's, it's really um, the largest community college that I know of the 765 <laughs> guests that uh, have come and uh, shared their wisdom with us. And speaking of sharing wisdom, next week is episode 251. We have oh Jacques Atali, writer, uh, futurologist, and president of the Positive Planet Foundation as our first guest. We have Peter High, president of Meta Strategy host of uh, Technovation podcast, columnist at Forbes, author and keynote speaker. Wow. And we have Asha Aravandakshan, Vice President of Customer Delight and Operations at Sprinkler. So again, three extraordinary guests next week. Ray, your conference is coming up. Any thoughts about uh, Constellation Connect 2021 that our audience can learn? 
Yeah, Connected Enterprise 2021, Half Moon Bay at the Ritz. Uh, we're going to have a limited audience, but we'll still have about 250 people. Uh, we're doing call downs right now um, with our clients to see who's coming. We've got 400 people interested in 180 slots. So we're okay. coming. Uh, we're going to have come, first gonna, it's yeah. gonna first come, first serve and invite. If you haven't registered yet, please do so. Um, but yeah, we're really looking forward to hosting everybody there and, uh, you know, safety protocols, but more importantly, getting people together to talk, share, and of course, have a fun conversations across the board. So yeah. Have fun at Dreamforce next week, right? <laughs> I will. And we got Dreamforce. That was my point to you. have got Dreamforce coming up. It's partially virtual, partially in person. People have watch parties going on as well. And uh, so looking very exciting. So I'm attending a watch party at Fenway. It's funny with the baseball analogies, but on the 21st, I will be joined with, um, I think maybe close to 100 at the rooftop uh, garden at Fenway Park. So look out on, uh, you know, Twitter exchange and I have a few uh, assignments. Uh, hopefully will be live cast uh, on that day as well. So well, welcome everybody. Episode 250. Thank you for following us. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV every 11 a.m. Uh, Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. And so happy to have you guys on the show. Let us know your suggestions, let us know your comments, and please follow us at Disrupt TV Show. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye, everyone.